12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. This is such a familiar uh, passage of Scripture, you could probably quote it. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you may not grow weary and so you may not lose heart. I guess we've all heard of the four spiritual laws. You may have used these little booklets that are written in order to help a person explain to an unbeliever that he needs to um, have faith in Christ. One of these days I'm going to write a pamphlet called the four spiritual flaws. And in this pamphlet, I'm going to have four of them. And the first one is this. Because you are a Christian, all your problems are solved. That's the first flaw. Uh, you tell that to these people in the book of Hebrews and, uh, you, and make them believe that. Because oftentimes when you become a Christian, I mean, really commit yourself or take a stand as Bill has shared with us tonight. Your problems have just begun. These people have just, I mean, who took a stand for God, found problems in that stand that they had never experienced or known before. Second flaw, if you're having problems, it means that you're not spiritual. And if you were really spiritual, you wouldn't have any problems. Second flaw. The book of Hebrews, especially chapter 11, is the description of spiritual men and women, men who walked with God and lived the Spirit-filled life. Third flaw. Christians can't have emotional breakdowns. Because Christians are shielded from deep emotional strain. They never worry. And they never have a pressure of stress. It's a flaw. It's a failure. It's a mistake. Because there are many times when believers have deep emotional stress. Just imagine what it must have been like to, for these men and women, parents, to see their own children devoured by wild animals just because their parents were believers. Fourth spiritual flaw, being exposed to reliable Bible teaching automatically solves all my problems. With that kind of rationale, it would mean that all I'd have to do is watch Jack Nicholas play, play golf and I would all of a sudden automatically become a great golfer. The Bible is a marvelous guidebook to get us from here to there. 
But you and I have to get in the vehicle and drive. We have to apply the truth of the Bible. I could look at a map of Mexico for the rest of my life and never be any nearer to Mexico than what I am right now. Without the application of the Word of God, it's of absolute no value. Now there's a principle I want you to get that I think emerges from chapter 11. And the principle is this, that when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ that is vital, you enter into a battlefield on this earth. The book of Hebrews is a book written to people who are in a warfare, they're in a battle, and some of them have defected. Some of them have gone back on their faith. And so the author of the book of Hebrews writes this book primarily in the hope that there would be less who would defect. Now he's not saying in this book, here is an easy way to get out of trouble or to escape trial or pressure or difficulty. What he is saying is, I'm writing this book to tell you, yes, I understand that to enter into a relationship with Christ that is vital brings about the warfare, intense warfare. But I want to write this to picture the sovereignty of Christ so that you will hang in there and endure. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews is a testimony then that faith, the faith life endures. The faith life works. And then he moves with the word therefore as a bridge, a, a, a transition word to chapter 12. And he's just described these men who have endured tremendous suffering to say that the faith life really works. And then he moves in transition to show us where these people are today. And he says that we're encompassed about, we are, there, there is this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And he's talking about these people who have been in the battle and have gone on. They've endured the, the warfare, they've been on the field, they've played the game, and now they're on the other side victorious. And he says that we are living our life now. We're in the arena. Peter calls that the agonai, the, 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 the place of agony. And we're, we're under the gaze and the witness of those who have fought the battle before us. It's interesting that the word he uses for cloud here is the symbol, is the picture of God uh, presence in the wilderness wanderings, they knew God was there, conscious of their wandering, cognizant of their need because they saw His presence in the cloud. And he says that you and I struggle in this warfare, live this life out as, as Christians in the presence of in the awareness of those who have fought the battle before us. Now he can be talking about, or he may not be talking about, the actual awareness, the literal watching of those who have preceded us, who have fought the battle. Yeah, I frankly think he, he is suggesting that they are watching us. 
that while we're living this life out tonight, living the Christian life, we're doing it in the watchful gaze of those saints of God who have gone on before us. And the word there for uh, uh, watchful cloud is a word that means to bend down and observe. It's the picture of one who almost draws here with us, who is drawn near to us, who bends down to observe us, so that what we do is under the, in, under the watchful eye of those who care about us. Now before we're commanded to run this race, and we are, we're commanded to do two things, to lay aside two things in order to live this life effectively as a Christian, two things we must lay aside. The first he calls every encumbrance. It means needless baggage. It's excessive weight, mass or bulk. And while I was doing a little etymology on this word, looking it up in my Greek theological dictionary, the Greek word means swelling superfluous mounds of flesh. <laughs> swelling superfluous <laughs> mounds of flesh. Oh, great. Now, it doesn't mean that if you weigh 375 pounds, you can't run the race. I mean, you, it, there's no rule that says a 375-pound man can't run the race, but a 375-pound man won't make it. And what we're talking about, what he's talking about is not literal poundage, but spiritual poundage, excess baggage. He's talking about priorities. Now what he's saying is this, that there are so many things in your life that you don't need that all they do is encumber you and defeat you in the race. I was telling a person the other day, I was bragging about my jogging. I said, I jog three miles every day. They said, oh, I can't believe it. And they looked at me and said, you do what? And he said, how long have you been jogging? I said, about 10 years I've been jogging, three miles, five days a week for 10 years. And they kind of, they weren't impressed. He said, well, my brother-in-law jogs 25 miles a day. He's just been jogging about four years. I said, you take an 80-pound weight and tie it around your brother-in-law's waist and see if he can jog 20 miles a day. You know, all that excess baggage do make a difference. In the running of the, of the race, in the, in the living of the life, there, uh, there is excess baggage. In Alex, in, in Alex Abrams' marvelous little book, Applied Imagination, he tells about a man who meticulously reviewed his 80 years on earth and calculated how he'd spent his time. This is how he did it. 26 years he spent in bed, 21 working, Eating con con uh, con con uh, consisted of six years. So did getting angry. He spent six years being angry. He flitted away five years waiting for people who were tardy. Shaving took 228 days. Scolding his children 26 days. 
tying his necktie, 18, blowing his nose, 15, lighting his pipe, 12, and he added mournfully, I figure that I laughed for only 46 hours in all of my life, not one word, not one mention of service for God, prayer, Bible study, or worship. I wonder how long, how much of your life is spent on things that really don't count. Anthony Campola has a new book called Who Switched the Price Tags? And he says in this book, he said on October the 30th in Philadelphia where I grew up, that was a big night because that was the night we pulled all the practical jokes. He said, I could just imagine slipping into the department store, changing the price tags. And so when somebody came in, he bought a suit of clothes. He could buy a suit of clothes for $1.95, but a pair of socks cost $125. And then Anthony Campolo said, something terrible has happened. For somebody has slipped into the, to life and has changed the price tags and the things that are really not worth a flip. We place all the emphasis, all the time, all the energy on those. And so the author of the book of Hebrews said, now you're, in, you're engaged in a, in, a, in a struggle. This is a warfare. And I want you to know that in order to war this, this warfare and live this life, you're going to have to put aside some of those things that are really not that important. How much time do you spend watching television and gossiping? And I just thought I might list some things that might be excess baggage like an indifferent attitude, a lack of discipline with regard to the mind, impatience, and procrastination, excess baggage. The second thing he said that we must lay aside is the sin which entangles us. Now what is the sin he's talking about? Well in the context he's talking about the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief that God can or will do what he says he will do. And this unbelief attacks us in different ways. For example, when some problem comes, unbelief attacks us in, in the area of a, of a human mode of thinking so that I begin to think, I can't handle this. This is too big for me. And worry and anxiety come. And this sin of unbelief, do you really believe tonight that God can and will do what He says? And that sin of unbelief entangles us so that two things result. One is that we want to quit before the end of the test. And so we make commitments. When the test comes, we back out before the end of the test. Or we want to change the course to make it more comfortable. I want an easier way out. Because I don't believe that God can and will do what He says He would do. And so what, are the, what is the command? The command is simply this, to run with endurance. The people that I respect the most are not necessarily the winners. The people that I respect the most are the endurers. Uh, you've read John Claypool's book, Tracks of a Fellow Struggler. 
in this book, it's the six sermons he preached in line of his, as he watched his daughter die of leukemia. She was 12. And in the end of this book, he came to this conclusion that all the time he preached on how God was supplied, how God was sustained, but in the midst of the suffering of watching his daughter die, he didn't really believe that he was believing what he preached. We said, when I came to the end of it, I realized that really God was supplying my need and God's grace really was sustaining me because when I got out to the end and I was able to look back after a little while after her death, I realized that it had it not been for the grace of God, I would have caved in. The people that I admire the most are not the people that come triumphantly home after every victory, but those who just keep on enduring some of the most difficult and painful experiences I've ever known about. Fred Dixon ran the decathlon, the most grueling of track and field uh, races. Includes several uh, endurance uh, uh, categories. Not only is it you run the mile, you run the quarter, you, you high jump, you pull vault, several of those shot put, he, the decathlon. Fred Dixon was running the decathlon, was participating in the decathlon in Montreal and he was coming in last in every race. And so in one of the races, it was just so painful, he quit. He stepped off the track and quit. And he didn't show up for the next race and, and all he could think about as he was getting ready to leave Montreal was, one of these days my kids will read that I quit. And so he unpacked his bags and he went back and asked the judges to let him go ahead and finish the decathlon and they granted his request. He came in dead last. That was in 1976. In 1978, he was the leading American in the decathlon at the World Games. In 1980, he had the best decathlon times for all American participants as they prepared to go to Russia, and you know those games were called off. Fred Dixon has written about his experience. It was in Guidepost magazine, and he said, I realize that the most important thing in life is not winning, but enduring. And sometimes people, because of their perfectionistic nature, say, if I can't win, I won't run at all. But the author of the book of Hebrews says that God approved them because they endured. So that the best thing I can say to you tonight is maybe not, at, not here's how to win in life's race, but how to endure it. How can I do it? What is, what is the strategy? What is the technique? Well, he gives us the technique. Now, this sounds like good uh, pre preaching, but it doesn't make a bit of sense to some of us. What does it mean when he says, fixing your eyes on Jesus? What in the world is he talking about? Well, you know, I, I thought I'd just give a little object lesson here tonight, so I brought my calendar. This is my weekly appointment book. 
This is the chronicle of my days right here. This is where I live, how I, this is how I live. Right here is the chronicle of my days. I want you to think of what yours. And I just brought this little piece of paper, simple object lesson illustration. I want this piece of paper to represent Jesus. I'm going to put the chronicle of my days, I'm going to put that which represents my life, I'm going to cover it with Jesus. I'm going to ask myself a question, is Jesus big enough to cover my problem? I'm going to remember what that man said when he said this. He said, when Jesus came to live in my life, I determined from that day on I would ask this question, I would say this one thing. Whenever I encountered something that was too difficult for me, I would say this, because of this I have Jesus. Because of this I have Jesus. Because I'm encountering today the warfare that's going to tear me down, beat me up, wipe me out. Because of this, I have Jesus. So that everything, every demand that's made upon my life is just a demand made upon the Christ who lives in me. Is Jesus qualified to meet this problem that's in my life. I'm going to cover my days with Jesus. Well, he said, he's run the race. Look here. Who for the joy set before him, that is, in the anticipation of what was beyond the race. He, he prayed this prayer filled with pathos in, in John 17. Father, glorify thou me with the glory I had before the world was. Because of that joy of the, of the glorification that was imminently His, He endured the cross, despising, He hated the shame. And now He sat down at the right hand of God. And so... When I war and when I struggle in life, I'm going to consider him who has endured. That word consider means I'm going to meditate on Jesus. Now fixing your eyes upon Jesus means that you see your problem as he covers it and ask is he qualified to meet it. But to consider Him means that I'm going to walk through life meditating on Him. I'm going to take Him beyond, outside. I'm not going to leave Him at church. I'm going to take Him with me into my failures. And I'm going to meditate on Him and what He did. And I understand that because He died on the cross like that for me, there's nothing He wouldn't do for me. Now what is the application? These are two applications. Number one, I'm going to claim the grace to persevere. Now I believe there is a special grace to persevere. I'm going to claim the grace to persevere. Napoleon stood beside the pyramids in ancient Egypt and addressed his victorious French army. They had just finished a successful campaign that began in Alexandria and swept across Egypt. 
And he waved his hands. He motioned toward the pyramids and said, Soldiers of France, 40 centuries look down upon us today. I like to believe that as I live my life day by day, centuries of saints look down upon me and cheer me on and cheer me on. I like to think that perhaps the dearest friend I've I had in Tulia, Texas, who's gone on, who used to meet me every Monday morning to encourage me, pray with me. I like to think that he's somewhere now bending down, aware of me, cheering me on, saying, go on, go on. You're never alone. A few years ago, when TCU had a great football team, that's when they won a game or two. Um, Jim Swank was playing in the backfield, All-American, three times All-American. They were playing the University of Texas for the Southwest Conference Championship. And it was a big game in Eamon Carter Stadium, of course, in Fort Worth. And so the coaches for TCU got all the great players that had played for TCU in the past and invited them to the game to sit on the sidelines. They had chairs for them on the sidelines. And so while the TCU team came out on the field to warm up, these boys, these men, young men who had played for TCU in the past came on the field and lined up on the side. And as TCU, the ball was kicked off at the start of the game, these boys played in the awareness that men who had played and won, played and endured, played and accomplished were there cheering them on. There are going to be times when you and I feel that we're all alone. And there's a godly father and there's a godly mother and there's a brother, there's a sister, there's a friend, there's a pastor, there's a Sunday school teacher. I think, I believe, knows all about what you're going through. Somewhere from the battlements of heaven, they're bending down. A great cloud of witnesses. And they're cheering us on. Let's pray together. Father, we had not asked for a task, a responsibility that is equal to our strength, but we would ask for strength that is equal to the task. And help us to keep in mind that there have been others who have been before us and who have come out on the other side and they've endured and there is hope, there is encouragement for us. And I pray that you'll help us to lift our eyes away from the things that don't really matter in the running of the race. And fix our eyes upon Jesus who gave us faith to begin with and who perfects it. The way he perfects it is by letting us endure the test 
Oh Lord, let us meditate, help us to keep our mind on the fact of what he's done. Pour contempt on all our pride. And we pray for endurance, for grace to endure. And that in that endurance, we might reflect an example of Jesus to the world because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. There are three invitations tonight. The first invitation is an invitation to receive Christ as your personal Savior, an invitation for church membership, an invitation for the rededication of your life to more fully follow through on promises already made. And we'll give an invitation, give an opportunity for you to publicly respond to these invitations as we stand to sing.